And if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We will be in verse 17 today as we finish our study of the Ten Commandments here on Sunday morning. I will read from his word and then we shall pray. Listen carefully because this is God's word to you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing on our message this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word that you have brought us, this very challenging word into our lives. I ask that you would help us to examine it closely and that our hearts would be ready to receive what you would have to tell us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this commandment is probably one of the hardest commandments to keep. Far from being the last in a series of very important commandments, as DeYoung had phrased it, the commandments don't go, don't worship any other gods and end with, oh, and stop looking at your neighbor's donkey. This is not how the commandments work. Instead, this is not going out on some sort of small whimper, but that this is ending with a bang. Because what this commandment tells us is that the Lord is not interested in just external obedience. It's easy to just not murder somebody. It's easy to just not steal something. But this tells us the Lord's looking at your heart, even if you want to steal something. If you want your neighbor's wife, the Lord sees it, and the Lord is commanded against it. And indeed, he takes coveting, in fact, quite seriously, as we'll see in other parts of the Scriptures, but I can reference just the one that we read in the New Testament. Remember from Colossians chapter 3? It told you to put off the old life, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. That was in the same list. With what, we will, with what we would consider the big sins. But the Lord sees it as a big sin. But now far from this being something that we should, that this, that this should rightly show us our need for a Savior, but that this should give us hope too. Because remember how we've been looking at this commandments, that it's also been a promise of freedom. That we can be freed from lying. We can be freed from stealing. And now it shows we can be freed even at the level of our desires. That our heart can be changed. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you'll follow along with me in, your, in the bulletin, I've, I've got the outline printed for you on the back of the prayer guide. And we're going to look at two things. The first point is that we are given freedom 
from chasing the fading. And I'll describe what that means. Freedom from chasing the fading. And then number two, freedom to embrace the everlasting. That's what I hope that you will see. I hope that as we get to the end of this, we will see coveting is not one of those little commandments that can be forgotten. In fact, the devil wants us to think that about this commandment. But indeed, as what we'll look at here with coveting, we'll see this is something that we need desperate help with. And through the gospel, we're offered it. So let's take a look. Let's start with a question. What is coveting? It's kind of an old word. What does it mean to covet? Is it just saying all desire of any kind is wrong? Is that what the Bible is saying? No, that's not what the Bible is saying at all. That's Buddhism. Buddhism is trying to get rid of any sort of an all desire. It says that the Buddhist teaches that uh, all suffering comes from desire. So if you want to be free from suffering, be free from desire. The problem is that's a desire to be free from desires. Kind of hard. So that's not what we're talking about here. We're not being freed from all desire. In fact, if you look into uh, Matthew uh, 26, verse 39, we'll see that Jesus has a desire in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says in verse 39 of Matthew 26, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What is that? That's a request. That's a desire. He doesn't want to go through the wrath of God. No one should want to do that. Yet he was willing to go through it for our sakes. So here, Jesus is sinless. Jesus has never coveted. So obviously here, he's making a request. He's making a prayer. He's having a desire. Therefore, that's not what coveting is. It's not just a desire of any kind. So what is it? Instead, this is a desire to obtain something either by sinning or for the purpose of sinning. Kevin DeYoung, a preacher in the PCA, put it this way. He says, there's nothing necessarily wrong with noticing what other people have, but most of us don't stop and notice so that we can give thanks to God for his blessings to others. He says, we notice and then stop being thankful for all that God has given to us. I think that's a beautiful encapsulation of what coveting is. It's looking at something and then not being thankful for what you have anymore. Seeing something and saying, this is something that I want. And I will get it at whatever cost I can. So if you want something and have and say, I wish I could steal it. There's coveting. Or if you say, I want this thing so that I can do something sinful. There was a, an advertisement some years ago from the car maker Aston Martin. And the tagline for it was, demoralize your neighbor. The copy continued to read, Lexus, Mercedes, and BMW, all your neighbors already have those. Possess something that will make them jealous. Demoralize your neighbor, Aston Martin. And what does this appeal to? It's appealing to our covetous desires to be better than our neighbor. To make them jealous of us. 
to make us look better than them. Is that what Christ calls us to do? Of course not. That's what coveting is. Desiring to obtain something in a sinful way or desiring something for the purpose of being able to sin. And notice how specific this command gets. You would think that perhaps we could have saved some paper and just say, don't covet anything your neighbor has. Be nice, tight, punchy, just like all the rest of the commandments. But what the Lord is doing is he is unfolding how deep this can go. Because we tend to think, well, you know, just wanting the big stuff. No. It's down to anything that is his neighbor's, even his donkey or his ox. Now, we don't have much trouble with that these days because, then, because we, don't, we don't use ox and donkeys as tools anymore. But we could update this and say your neighbor's car or his RV or anything else that is his neighbor's. None of these things were things that you could have. A house, or in Deuteronomy 5, it specifies his field. The land that the Israelites were given were given to them by God, and they were not supposed to sell it. This was wanting something that you couldn't have and meant that you were ungrateful for the possession of land that God had, in fact, given you. This is the context for coveting. But now we could ask, well, why is coveting wrong? Beyond just the fact that, well, God said it, even though that is, in fact, enough. But why else might coveting be wrong? Well, what we find is that coveting is, in fact, the root to all other sin. Turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 4. And we'll start at verse 1. If you've ever wondered why is it that we can't all just get along, James answers for us in James chapter 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels or fights? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Hear what James is saying. Coveting, desire, wanting something that you cannot have, and so you'll turn to anything else to get it. Isn't that where all of our sins really come from? If you really think about it? Something that's down in your heart? Why do you pick a fight with your spouse? Because you want something from them that they're not giving you? Why do you pick a fight with your neighbor? Because you want the property on this end or that end of the fence? Why is it that affairs happen? It's not just what happened there that one night. This wasn't a lapse in judgment, a momentary moment of weakness. Now, this was a months or even years long process that all started here in the heart. I wanted this person. And it led to this and led to this and led to that. That's exactly what James is telling us. It all begins here in the heart. 
That's also listable, although we won't turn there. But in Micah 2.2, if you want to write that down, read that this afternoon. This is another place that mentions that same thing. So both the Old and the New Testament affirm that this is where covetous, that sin comes from our hearts. Comes from this desire for something else that we want. Isn't that where sin started in the garden? God gave Adam and Eve everything except one tree. And they were told they can't have it. What did they do? They looked at the tree. Thought it looked good. God said no, but we'll take it anyway. Started there, and here we are. And as I also said before, it's like the, the Bible says that covetousness is wrong. You could look at you can write these down in Luke 12, 15. We hear it from the mouth of Jesus himself. Luke 12, 15. We hear it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. We also hear it, and I'll actually turn to this one. In Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. This is a really interesting verse. And as many commentators pointed out, this was the the commandment, number 7, is what brought Paul to his knees. Look what he says here in Romans chapter 7. Verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. For for I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Here's what this is Paul is talking about. Paul earlier had been bragging about how he has been a Pharisee. Had pursued after God with everything that he had. Until he realized that God wasn't just after externals. But it was in coveting. He didn't know it was wrong. Until the law showed him that it was. This is what brings Paul to his knees. So this is why coveting is wrong. It's because... This is what leads to all other sin. Scripture has told us in many places that this is a sin. And further, coveting actually breaks the first commandment. The commandment that says, you shall worship no other God but me. To quote again from Kevin DeYoung, he says, If only I had blank, I would finally be happy. What's in the blank for you, he asks. For most of us, the blank is our functional God. What does he mean by functional God? Well, if we have something, if I only had blank, then I would be happy. You tend to be working pretty hard to get whatever's in that blank. And you'll sacrifice whatever it takes to get that blank if that's what you think it means to be happy. Well... What would you call something that you've dedicated your energies, your life, and your happiness to but a God? Here in the first commandment, God is calling us to say that we will only worship him and only find our satisfaction in him. Because it's a, it's a pretty poor God that we would find our boats, our houses, or our retirement plans more interesting than him. 
as not just what we say. We can try to comfort ourselves saying, well, the Lord knows my heart. It's like, yes, he does. And that should really terrify us. He knows what we think about when our mind is unoccupied. He knows what our thoughts go back to when we're just sorting the laundry. He knows what's stirring in our chest when we're lying in bed at night. He sees it. He sees the coveting. This is why coveting is so bad. This is why it's put up in the same list with sexual immorality. Because coveting divides your loyalties. It turns your eyes away from God. And that's the most dangerous place for your eyes to be, is looking at something else. So what are some things that we covet? The Lord was specific and listed out a few, but that's by no means an exhaustive list. We can covet after things, cars, houses, vacations, that sort of thing. We, all that's pretty easy to think about. But we can also covet a status. For those of us that are single, desiring to be married. Or for those of us who are younger and wishing we were older, or who were older and wishing we were younger. Coveting after a status in life. Wishing we could have our children be little itty-bitty again. And then oh, those of us who are wishing that they would be itty, that they would grow a lot larger and sleep. All these things that we can covet. It was a poem that had said, when I was young, I wished to be old. When I was old, I wished to be young. When it was spring, I wished it was fall. And when it was fall, I wished it was summer. And I got to the end of my life and realized I never got what I wanted. That's coveting. Coveting things, status, situations, people, abilities. I wish I could do that. Or wish I could do that again like I used to. All of these things are coveting. And the sad thing is, is all of these things are fading. That's why I titled this particular point, Freedom from Chasing the Fading. Because you never actually catch it. James, in James 4.14, says that our life is a vapor. And if our entire life is a vapor, then the little thing that you're after is even more vaporous than you are. Because you'll likely see the end of that thing. Ever notice that when you finally get the thing that you have been wanting all along, you suddenly start wanting again? You finally get that thing, and now you need to get all of the accessories for it? You got the boat, and now you wish it just went a little bit faster. Maybe if it had a trolling motor, or maybe if it had some things for the fishing poles. Coveting only breeds more coveting. And the more things you get, the more things you tend to covet. John D. Rockefeller, probably one of the richest men in history in America. Oil tycoon was asked, how much money does someone need to be happy? And he responded famously, just a little bit more. That's the only thing it ever promises. That's where coveting brings us. And that's what we're supposed to be freed from. But what are we freed to? What's the opposite of coveting? That's what we're going to look at here in our second point, is the freedom to embrace the everlasting. How do we do this? Well, this comes from contentment. Contentment is the opposite of coveting. Contentment has been defined by 
Another pastor, his name is uh, Philip Ryken, he puts it this way. Contentment means wanting what God wants for us rather than what we want for us. Read that again. Contentment means wanting what God wants for us rather than what we want for us. The secret is to be so satisfied with God that we are able to accept whatever he has or has not provided. This is contentment. Alistair Begg, another pastor, said, we must not think of the things that we could do with, but only of the things that we can't do without. It's a different focus in our mind of contentment. And the wonderful thing is, is that contentment can be found anywhere because by definition, it doesn't need anything. It's content. It's at rest. Contentment gives you what coveting promises you. Coveting promises you, if you just get this thing, you will be happy. Contentment tells you, you already have everything you need if you're in Christ. And that's the key. Contentment is not, you are not able to find contentment anywhere in your life without Jesus because you need something everlasting. Anything that you're going to have in this world is going to fade on you. And the thing that you once had, you'll lose. But if you have Christ, you have everything. And he will never leave you or forsake you. Turn with me to illustrate this in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. This is a really famous passage. This is written by the Apostle Paul. And he's writing from jail. He's been imprisoned for preaching the gospel, doing the, doing the right thing, going to prison anyway. And he is about to write to us about contentment. How on earth, Paul, are you content in a prison? Well, let's find out. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is that secret, Paul? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jesus. That's how contentment works. And by the way, that's what that verse is talking about. It's not being able to hit more home runs. It's having something much more difficult to do than get a touchdown. It's being content whether you get that touchdown or home run or not. That's the strength that Christ provides to you. Yes, is the Lord the one that, that fills your body with oxygen and life and is the one who holds you all together and will help you do whatever it is that you can do? Yes, absolutely. But in this particular instance, the thought that we as Americans can be content, that is a miracle. And it comes from Christ. You can find that in a prison. You can find that in a hospital bed. 
You can find that in a funeral home. Because that's where I tend to see contentment. In really unexpected places. And that doesn't come through their circumstances. The people that are able to be content when everything in their life is falling apart, it's not them. That's Christ. Behold the power of God. So now you may say, okay, well, I want this contentment. How does one get this? Get contentment. There is a somewhat lengthy quote here by another pastor. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. I don't apologize for the length of this quote because it's really, really good. So listen carefully. Talking about how we can be content. He says, if contentment could be produced by programmed means, five steps to contentment in a month, it would be commonplace. Instead, Christians must discover contentment the old-fashioned way. We must learn it. Thus, we cannot do contentment. It is taught by God. We are schooled in it. It's part of the process of being transformed through the renewing of your minds. And he cites Romans 12, 1 and 2. It is commanded of us, but paradoxically, it is done to us, not by us. It's not the product of a series of actions, but of a renewed and transformed character. Only good trees produce good fruit. And here is the crux of the matter. How do we learn to be content We must enroll in the divine school in which we are instructed by biblical teaching and providential experience. What is Mr. Sinclair saying? He's saying that contentment isn't something that we gin up on our own. If you are content, then you are a miracle because Christ has worked in your heart. This is not something that comes even to Christians instantly. This is something that you need to learn over many years. You need to hear from the scriptures what Christ is and has done for you. You need time walking with Jesus and seeing his providence in your life all the way through. So that wonderful hymn, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. You need to raise a lot of Ebenezers. You need to see God has worked in your life over and over and over and over and over again. And realized the stuff that you wanted wasn't there for you for that. But Christ sure was. When those glittery things finally lost their luster after about five minutes. You know who was still there? Christ was still there. How can you say you have nothing? Says Kevin DeYoung. You have Christ. So what is Christ? Been talking about him a lot been praying to him and singing singing to him, what has he done? Well, these commandments that God gave to his people, and by extension, us, have been given in a way, there is no way we can keep these perfectly. Because as we've seen, it's not just the external actions, but it's all the internal actions that lead up to them. Not even supposed to want the other things. That would even lead us to occasions to sin. That means we're sinful to the core. 
We might be able to tie our hands down so we don't steal anything anymore. We could tape our eyes shut so we don't, or aren't unfaithful to our spouse anymore. But the problem is not just our actions. That's what's led to them. God knows this when he gave us the commandments. He knew that was something that we couldn't keep. That's why after the Ten Commandments, as we look through the rest of the Old Testament, we see God set up a sacrificial system. It's like, when you break these commandments, not if, but when you do so, you're supposed to bring a lamb. You're supposed to kill it and offer it as a burnt offering in your place. Because breaking of God's commandments deserves death. That's what it says in Romans, that the wages of sin is death. So for the Old Testament, they would kill a lamb, and the lamb would take the death in its place. So God could be merciful to his people, saying, you can still have a relationship with me, because I know you sin. But that wasn't going to be the system forever. This system was pointing ahead to a time when there would be an ultimate sacrifice for sins. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is God himself, who came to earth and took on human nature and was like us in every way, except without sin. You see, he didn't do any of these other sins we saw in the commandments, even all the way down to his heart. He didn't never desired anything that he shouldn't have, but was always perfectly loyal to God. And then he died, just like that lamb was supposed to take the Israelites' death for them. Jesus has taken our death for us. They say, now wait a minute, I thought we, we still die. Yes, physically. We don't have to die spiritually. We don't have to spend eternity in hell, an eternal conscious torment for all of eternity. That's what our sin deserves, because we've sinned against God. But instead, he offers us forgiveness. Now, we can have Christ's perfect record all the way down to our thoughts. We don't have to fear anything in judgment. Yes, the Lord has conflicted through our hearts like a book. But if you have repented of your sin, turning from it and wanting to turn to Jesus, putting your full trust in him, not in anything that you can do, then all those pages can be wiped clean and instead be inscribed with everything that Jesus ever did. It's the great exchange. Our sins on Jesus to pay for them, his righteousness on us. That's what he promises. And more than just an exchange of record, he promises a renewed life. So that the longer you walk with Christ, the less and less you will sin. And the more you'll hate it when you do. Even down to the desires. He'll give you new ones. Now instead of chasing after stuff you'll never get anyway, you can pursue after Christ whom you'll have forever. This is the freedom that these commandments promise to us. This is the freedom that Christ offers to us. So if you have never asked God to forgive you of your sins, if you've never put your whole trust in him, then I would say, let's do that today. If you need some help with that, I would love to help you. I don't care if you've been in church for 30 years and feel like, oh, I should know this by now, but I only just now got it. The Holy Spirit works that way. It's okay. I would love to talk to you and to show you how you can have a relationship with Christ. Now you can have this new life as well. And for those of you that have come to Christ and say, it's like, well, I know it's walking with Jesus. 
But how can I help along in this process? How can I be more content? I would say spend some more time in thanksgiving in your prayers. A lot of times when we pray, we'll use it in emergencies. And so the only time we're ever in prayer is when we're asking for stuff. But instead, spend some extended time thinking about the things that God has given to you. Imagine if you only had today what you thanked God for yesterday. How much would you have? Spend some time thanking Him. Notice how God has worked in your life. This is one thing I, I love in taking a journal. Not always the best at it, but when I'll write things in a journal, I'll look back and see, oh, the thing I was really worried about here on page 5, it was solved by page 15. And I wouldn't change five at all. Notice how God is working in your life. And finally, look forward to the future. Christ has not only saved you from your sins so that you don't have to burn in hell for all of eternity, but has also said you can come and be with me in paradise forever. We're going to go to a heaven where Jesus is, where there is no more desiring after stuff. There is no more neighbors demoralizing us with their cars. Instead, we can have a vision of God to where the hundred Aston Martins wouldn't even catch our eye because we would be so overwhelmed with the glory that we will see. Keep your eyes on the future. It's so much brighter than the present. I know we can look around and our world wants to have us be depressed all the time. It's how they keep us watching the televisions and buying their stuff. Look to the future. There is hope there. Jesus bought it for you with his own life. But not only did he die, he rose again from the dead. That's hope, people. Your life is a vapor here. But it will go on for all of eternity. You don't get to take your stuff with you. But you're going to something so much better. That's our hope, Noah. That's the gospel. Hear it and believe it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the ultimate gift of your Son. You've given us a Savior who will never leave us or forsake us, but will be with us all the way to the end of the age and far into eternity. I ask that you would help us to see how great you are and that when we look at these things in this world, that they would all go strangely dim in the light of your glorious grace. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.